Yo, this hot, this the spot, there it is, pod.com. We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them. We're talking about life and life to stream right to you from the microphone right to your home, dude. Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo, because there it is. Welcome to the There It Is podcast, a comedy podcast to help you find your inspiration. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. Thanks so much for joining us here on today's episode. We have a really great guest for you today. It's Simone Norman, and she is an actor, a writer, and comedian, and has done a ton of different things. And that's actually part of what makes this such a good episode, because She has a lot of really good insight about working in those different areas and how not to get bogged down doing it all. It's a really fun chat. She's very sweet. Why don't we just get right to it? Here's my chat with Simone Norman. Let's talk first about how the comedy bug bit you. When did you start performing? When did you get into comedy? When did I start performing? Um, When I was born (laughs) when i performed you know my personality a lot for (laughs) for adults i know that life you know when you're like you you don't sit at the kids table you sit with the adults and you could talk with them and you think that that makes you like a genius that that was the vibe and didn't have a lot of friends uh (laughs) really like perfect alchemy perfect breeding grounds for doing well in comedy as an adult (laughs) but i i started acting i always wanted to be an actor when i was a kid and we did you know i can't sing so when i joined the theater club in high school i i couldn't really get any roles in the musicals but Mm -hmm. i did get roles in the we would do a comedic play in the fall like in neil simon like whatever yeah you know when 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 high schoolers are are put in like suits and are smoking fake cigars and drinking fake scotch and it's like (laughs) iced tea and it, and it's a murder mystery and everyone's talking like this <laughs> so i did a lot of those and okay. then when i got to college i joined the columbia sketch group and the all-female improv group on campus mm-hmm. and i was eventually the, the the president of those which is on my linkedin president of <laughs> improv groups um, and then, and then I thought that I was going to be a speech language pathologist. I studied linguistic. Oh, where did you go to school for all of this? Oh, I went to Barnard College, which is the women's undergraduate college of Columbia. So okay. I was in Manhattan and I grew up in New York and yeah, so I've always, I've always lived here, but yeah, so I, I thought I was going to be a speech pathologist and then I was like, well, this is deeply boring. <laughs> I mean, it's fun to study. Very fun to study linguistics. Had acting, like, was that in, in your mind at that time? Were you just like, oh, I'll just act whenever? Or were you, like, kind of done I with it? I thought that I was doing it on campus because it was fun and I was good at it. But ultimately, I'd be getting a real job, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And I remember, <laughs> it's such a stupid clarity moment. But I remember watching a, a debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump in 2016 when that was happening and being like, Oh my God, the world is so deeply stupid. Like nothing fucking matters. Like I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go be an actor. Like 
why am I taking anything seriously? That's what the pandemic did to me, actually. Like in 2020 and 2021, I was like, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like life is so fleeting. Yeah, it's like an opposite of a grown-up moment of like, and in that moment, I knew I needed to get my shit together and grow up. It was like, no, in that moment, I was like, let me take my grad school applications off the website and ask my mom to take my headshot in the backyard of my childhood home. <laughs> You're regressing. Right. Yeah, and no, I think that's I think that's progressing. You oh. Well, that's generous of you. <laughs> well, I think, you know, knowing that what you want to do and what matters to you in life and then going for it is a very adult thing to do. And a very, and I think the, the very right thing to do because, you know, it's, I just, what I was saying about the pandemic and it sounds similar to what you're saying is like, why don't I just do what I want to do? Right. If the world is going to be like this and everyone is so out of their mind or dumb <laughs> or it's life is so precious and fleeting, then why wouldn't I do what I want to do? Hey, you know what? I generally don't put up a Christmas tree before Thanksgiving, but I don't care. <laughs> like, I'm doing it this there time. No you know, realist society norms <laughs> don't matter. I'm going to put up my Christmas tree when I fucking want. <laughs> I'll keep it up as long as I want. I'll do that. Why, if I want to enjoy it, why wouldn't I just enjoy something? Right. And it's, you know, it's deeply embarrassing to be like well yeah that was the moment i realized the world was a nightmare i mean but also yeah. i think i was i was 23 and so it was yeah. like it was a reality it's actually check. good timing that's good timing for that because some Thank people you. don't I mean, get I that think... until they're like 50 and they're like i should be doing i should have been doing something different all along right or like my dad where his like you know, leftist daughter is like daughter join the dsa your politics are bad and then he's <laughs> <laughs> learn about israel <laughs> but yeah so, so that's when I started my, my little journey. Okay. And what did it, because I know you did stand up and sketch and improv, right? You, mm -hmm. you did stuff at the pit. Which one started first or did you just kind of start them all at the same time? Improv was always my favorite. I mean, you can't, you can't be a professional improv, 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 improvisizer. I went to that. Yeah, I went to Columbia. You can't be a professional improv person, but it is so fun. And it is, mm -hmm. you know, I dragged all my friends to that garbage. They are such good friends. But I was on <laughs> the house teams at the pit. And um, and then, I, you know, I also did sketch. And, and then stand-up came last. I actually enjoy stand-up the least. Mm -hmm. Um, Why is that? Well, you're, you're by yourself, first of all. I mean, it, there is there's no greater feeling than getting a laugh, right? And so mm -hmm. when you get a laugh on your own, it's especially special. It feels but when you don't get a laugh alone. <laughs> when you don't get a laugh on your own, it is particularly mortifying. But also because it is yourself. I found it very lonely. And mm -hmm. I think that a lot of the, you know, playground anxieties that I referred to earlier would come out in those spaces because I would, you know, you show up by yourself to these shows or these mics, whatever. And the people who've been doing it for a long time are all friends already and all book each other on their shows in this kind of rotating, you know, just different permutations of the same. And, um, and and I would become friendly with them, but I always felt a little late to the game and 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 just insecure. And honestly, the social anxiety of it, yeah, not in the way of the fun of it for me. Ah, uh, yeah. And I, but I don't regret any of the stand up I ever did. It it is really 
been important for, for meeting people and also for understanding joke writing and understanding the difference between performing your personality and performing right. an actual comedy, you know? Yeah. I guess in New York, you can go up a bunch in a night if, mm -hmm. if you have the ability or capacity and bandwidth to do it. But it can be so long if you try a joke and you're like, okay, that didn't go over well. And this is how I'd have to rework it to get it to go well. That is a longer process, even if you could go up a bunch of times in one night, than mm -hmm. being in a scene with people and you put out an idea and then if it doesn't work immediately, they are there to help you make it work. So yes. within that scene, you get it working. Whereas it can take all night <laughs> to get the joke working. Well, it can best. take you awesome. Maybe you never even get it that night. It can take exactly. And, or even and, a year. <laughs> it could take right. Forever. And that is also why, you know, my ultimate goal with writing is to be more in writer's room settings than it would be to sell things individually, even though that's so far what I've been doing. I would like that's that, that the collaboration of it. It's just so fun. And yeah. also the just the imposter syndrome and the insecurities of feeling the pressure of going out on a limb with your own work and so uh intimidating and it, it can it can feel great when it goes well but when it it goes poorly it's just like okay well my brain is bad i guess people don't yeah. see it well it's a lot there's a lot to do there's a lot to try and if it doesn't you know like it like you said if it doesn't go well then it's just the pits <laughs> it's, it's unfortunately <laughs> Let's talk just for a second about that sort of anxiety of it all, because it's like the profession of acting, of doing comedy, whether you're trying to do it professionally or not, there can be a lot of anxiety because it and, and the imposter syndrome. It's a lot, you know, especially like you have an agent. When you go to meet with them, you want an agent, you need an agent. But mm. can it also be easy to think, oh, gosh, am I a? Am I a big phony? Am I ready for this? Like, do I have what I need to really do this? And I'm trying to convince this person that I have what is needed to yes. do this. Sometimes I worry that my imposter syndrome isn't even war warranted because I'm not talented enough to be in a wow. space where I can consider myself an imposter upon that space. Sometimes yeah, I'm like, well, I'm not even in. <laughs> Becomes this meta, like this recursive self, self doubt. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, with agents and stuff, I think a lot of artists are really anxious people. I also feel embarrassed about the inherent narcissism required to make art for a living. I think that it's a waste of time to to say things. like I think the criticism of artists that it's like, well, what does this contribute to society? I think that is so stupid and 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 obviously not a real critique because art is what makes life <laughs> worth living it's like oh well uh, would you have preferred to take the pandemic without television like yeah. people <laughs> and without a book or something to read yeah, yeah right without a book to read or maybe something else to do but but i do struggle with the narcissism required to continually believe that i am so special or compelling that mm. I should I should be allowed to and you should want to pay for watching me do my song and dance or whatever or yeah. tell my yeah it's like when we got into acting we wanted to be an actor we're little kids and we we're inspired to do it we we're not thinking of it as because I'm so special we're well, thinking I was I'm a little bit thinking 
<laughs> well, I just I think won. for me, <laughs> I think you see something and you get you get enamored with it. Yeah, you get inspired by it, and that's what really you know that that is a big part of what propels you to want to go into it. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you're an adult and you're trying to get an agent, you're trying to get cast, and you're trying to get attention. You absolutely have to say, look at me, everybody, and then peacock a little. And yeah, that's that's unfortunately yes, narcissistic. Thing, <laughs> yes. And the only thing that's different between promoting yourself or 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 existing in these spaces with versus without an agent is when you don't have an agent, you constantly have to say, I'm I'm the shit. Once you have an agent, your agent is just saying like, yeah. oh, she's the shit. And then at that point, the prestige of your agent starts to matter because certain, you know, it's it's all, it, it never ends. You know, the, the, the marketing of it and the promotion, self-promotion mm-hmm. of it are, is right. very, um, is, I found it enervating. Have you found a healthy way to do both? Like do the part that you have to do without it feeling like you're being arrogant? Yes, I think that, well, I mean, in comedy, self-deprecation works, but you can only do that for so long. Right. It becomes uninteresting. The way that I cope with it, with these kinds of drawbacks and anxieties in the business is that that is why it is important to me to have a lot of balls in the air and different disciplines in art or whatever, like to be a multi-hyphenate because you can toggle between them and reap the benefits of the, you know, the other spaces when the drawbacks of one start to bring you down, like when the, you know, loneliness element of stand-up would get me down and then I would do less stand-up and do more, or when the, um, you know, the kind of, for to create your own material and your own written work felt daunting or you had writer's block that's when it's a relief to be handed a script of somebody else's words and just get to sink yourself into it and not have to also have the double anxiety of like are these words even good you know because uh, it's, it's somebody else somebody else already did that for you or when the the pressure of looking a certain way in front of the camera for your auditions because i don't just audition for television and film and stuff like it's also like commercials mm-hmm. it really it's just about what you look like when the pressure of your visibility and your appearance becomes very stressful that's when writing is a refuge because what you look like doesn't matter so juggling okay, right. between those like that kind of oscillation right. keeps me feeling sane and keeps me able to enjoy kind of the best parts of all. yeah and you mentioned writing there. You've done a lot of writing. You, you write satire a good bit. You've done it for New York Times, Teen Vogue, Elle, Reductress. You, did you also do something for Oprah Daily? <laughs> what? No. Okay, there Not was something. Oprah Daily? com has you listed on their site as an author. And I was like, well. Oh, what? my God. I'm stewing her. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll send you the I link. I think I'll win. I have my network like $45. I'll, that's so funny. No, I've never written anything for Oprah Daily. Well, I was doing research. I found this. It says you're an actor, a comedian writer. Eh. Uh, I mentioned your solo show. You know what this is, I think, is that like when I entered the world of first or, you know, whatever, because I started writing for, I think that the kind of mega corporation that consumed my bio and my writer's profile or whatever oh, was circulated wow. to other, and it might not have been Hearst, it might have been the Meredith, whatever, I don't know. Mm-hmm. So some but, um, it, it got out there for SEO purposes then maybe? Yeah, okay, yeah, this is an SEO it. fluke. <laughs> my God, 
my Oprah debut was a <laughs> humiliating. Okay, but you have done all this other writing that that we mentioned. When did writing satire become a part of uh, come into the fold for you? Well, I've always wanted to write comedy. I I, I was gaining traction on Twitter, I guess, and Elle reached out to me and asked if I wanted to do some a humor piece and then once you have one byline other publications will potentially reach out and be interested as well if they like if they see your piece and they like it they might say we want you to do that for us so it kind of snowballed a little from there and but you know for every byline I have which isn't like that many like for every satire piece I have published there's like just a bazillion you know things that are scrapped and rejected and then Uh and now I have a pilot and I have a book of short stories that I'm trying to those things trying to shop around and mm-hmm. and I a uh, little little piece of satire news which is fun I got accepted into the St. Nels humor writer humor writing residency for women oh, at cool. the end of March so I'm trying to figure out right now what projects I'll be bringing to that what I'll be working on while I'm there so I've got it you know got some hires fire things are cooking awesome. I'm in the kitchen. yeah how much have you written for the reductress? I have a couple things. I put I put the thing. I you know you contribute. I contributed a lot of headlines, which is uh-huh. it's one version of reductress, and then you can also write, write a pieces, right. piece or whatever. Yeah. So I bring it up because back in 2019, a headline you wrote uses a picture with me in it. That's you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Are you in love with him or is he, is he just in any position of authority over you? <laughs> yeah. That was, yeah. no, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, so uh, a lot of friends who follow Reductress, they will reach out whenever they see me or my girlfriend, girlfriend of the show, Justina, sure, is sure. also in a lot of the pictures. Right. Them. Right. And so every once in a while, someone will tag us or, or send it to us like, hey, I saw this. And they always ask, how it happens and from my point of view as someone who just did the photo shoot uh i just went in they did a bunch of photos and then it's just used however it's used yeah yeah yeah. that the end of it for me was taking those pictures for them yeah which is a fun photo shoot but when it comes to matching a headline with the photo do you go through and find photos no no i don't get to choose no, okay. you were a, you were a, a, a surprise gift to me. I I remember being like, yeah, that guy could be like my TA. <laughs> sure, <laughs> that's funny. Okay, yeah, I I didn't even know how that part works. I didn't know if it was them they or the person it. who writes it. So so they choose it. So that's a question that I could never answer. <laughs> now yeah, I know. Glad to clear that up. That's so funny. Yeah, I wonder if people ever look at it and go like i don't see it you know like if if yeah. someone writes something and then they choose a picture and like huh i don't know if this guy can really pull this off uh the, I know, but i really be in a position of authority over me <laughs> yeah we talk about like i guess self-defeating thoughts or negative thoughts when i see the see some of those pictures i'm like ah why was my shirt so wrinkly or like I look so bad, you know, like I should have gotten a better great. haircut. Did, did you did you already you were familiar with that piece because your photo had been in it before 
you knew about me and you put it together that I was the one who had written it? Or did you, when you were researching me, be like, oh, my God, I'm in one of her things? So I remember the headline. Mm-hmm. But when I was researching and saw this, I was like, oh, wait, I remember this headline. That's funny. That's so That's cool that she did one that I did. It's a small uh, that, world. New York comedy is a small world. <laughs> I'm so glad that we got to talk about it. So when you're writing satire, how do you go about it? Like what? Because that is a tricky thing for a lot of people. It's a tough, I think, a tough form of comedy. So what? What do you think about when you try to write satire? Well, I pull from my life. That headline is absolutely a reflection of uh, my pattern of like getting big crushes on teachers and bosses and therapists and whatever all throughout my life. So it is just something that is ripped from the headlines, so to speak, of my daily experience. You know, the the piece I did on New York Times about the chapter notes of the influencers meeting, that was a time in my life when I was going to a lot of labor organizing meetings with the TSA. So I was pulling from the kind of hyper, like the the hierarchical kind of like obsessed with bureaucracy, even while you're trying to like avoid reproducing bureaucracy of capitalism whatever whatever the the hypocrisy of that there are contradictions in every space even the leftist ones and Mm -hmm. to you know to kind of i had been noticing how these different politics reproduce themselves in niche communities even the ones that are purportedly woke or whatever and so i thought like what would be the biggest contradiction of all would be submitting influencers to a labor setting in a union where mm-hmm. they're even bargaining with. <laughs> That's where that that just kind of popped in my head. I don't think enough people talk about how comedy is really making those connections. Mm-hmm. It's not like some people, they'll see someone who's just naturally funny and then they try to emulate being naturally funny. And it's like, you can't emulate. You have to be naturally funny. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah or be your own of funny, whatever that means right. to you. Exactly. But it really is, when you get down to the math of comedy, it really is saying, hey, this thing is like this thing in a very peculiar or buffoonery sort of way. So let's play right. up that buffoonery. That's essentially right. what you're trying to do. That's a really like clear-cut way to go about it. Yeah, you're just in contradictions and subverting expectations. It's, it's, it's yeah. more formulaic than people would think. And mm-hmm. certainly late-night writers are using that algorithm to just pump out jokes every single day at a, at a really impressive clip yeah. because it is that, let's say, simple at the end of the day. If it, but right. it's a, it's definitely a skill. I mean, they're very right, right. what they do, but it's... Um, oh, yeah, to write so much so quickly that's on the level, that's on a good enough level to be on television, is it is impressive. They are using a method. You can read and find out what the method is, but you're not going to necessarily do it unless you train that muscle. Unless you, because it is, it is entirely a skill. Um, well, and that's why people end up having the same joke sometimes. Yeah, where you'll be like, "Did this person plagiarize the joke?" And definitely, people have, but also just the, inherently, yeah. some, the structure of jokes, some things lend themselves to a Absolutely. natural punchline. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's everyone just making connections, like we said. And if it's something that's in the news, then it's something a lot of people who are writing for these shows are going to look at and then try to make connections on. And 
some just really lead naturally to certain conclusions. Yeah. When a bunch of talk was going on about music theft, like like people copying mm. another artist, right. I read this piece that was saying, well, this person sued this person for a song that just came out, but we went back and they're just a bunch of songs in that time signature, in that key, that right. have the same melody. <laughs> And right, and that's just music theory. Again, it's a formula. Right, right, exactly. That's why so someone it's, it's who's really, happen. really mastered music theory can hear the first 10 seconds of a song and then play the rest of it just based <laughs> right. on how it would make sense for it to go. Right, absolutely. Well, let's also talk about your acting because you've done a bunch of cool stuff. You've done several shorts, several series. One very cool thing you've done a good bit of is Stephen Colbert's tuning out the news. You've been on that quite a bit. Yeah. Very cool. How did acting come into the fold? How did getting that particular gig come about? That actually, I did have a manager at the time, but my manager didn't submit me for that. I think that that breakdown came through the pit. A lot of comedy jobs will scout comedy theaters for Mm -hmm. potential hirees. And I submitted to it and you just had to improvise a couple characters you know into a because it's an animated show so you had to do that you just record that and then just send that in and that was crazy i got that job right before lockdown i think i was tired in february 2020 Mm -hmm. so i remember my first week of work at the ed sullivan theater in columbus circle like i'm taking the elevator up there and i'm like I'm a working actor and I had just quit my nanny job, which was my like survival job of four years where I would make like 400 bucks a week in cash. And like that was, I just, I quit that because I was like, I don't need this anymore. I'm a working actor in New York City. <laughs> it was there for one week. Yeah. For one week and then it all shut down. And I was like, wow, that was a pretty killer one week getting to eat, you know, King of Chipotle week, yeah. every day. Um, <laughs> straight then luckily the show figured out on its feet how to go remote so you know cbs like sent us all this recording equipment oh very cool very nice built their own little recording spaces in our houses yeah and and then i was able i didn't get to keep any of the stuff but it was some nice (laughs) Nice stuff at the end of the season they would come to your they would send a pa to your house to come pick it all (laughs) up and then the pa would come back at the new season to Um, (laughs) so what was the setup if you don't mind my asking sure well they gave it was like it was just audio equipment just like a good microphone good good headphones a good mixer some sound board panels if you had a home that needed soundproofing i mean i'm sitting Uh in my closet right now because i don't have any of that nice cbs stuff anymore because i was only on for the first two seasons but yeah just some like basic soundproofing stuff and all the cords and cables you'd need to have a, a good audio setup oh interesting okay you also play a young drunk woman and Fleischman is in trouble, a new series that's out yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. They cut my line. I had a I had some I had some lines, but whatever. <laughs> you can see me in the, the first episode if you look hard. But um that was really cool because even though my line didn't make it, I did get to work with the directors from Little Miss Sunshine, Jonathan Dayton and his wife Valerie. I forgot her last name. So they were really cool. But yeah, just you, whenever you have a like a one or two or three line scene in it, like it may like, get cut. Yeah, probably gonna get cut. But you get to show up and get like a prison cell sized trailer for the day, and 
eat a lot of fruit snacks and like stare at the real actors and you know, be like, and you get a credit on IMDb. Hey, you get a credit on IMDb, friggin' me. So I always heard it was hard to play drunk. Did you find it hard to play drunk? No. Okay. <laughs> I didn't. I just, I don't, I'll try to think of that audition. Well, the, the way to play drunk is to play, the, you're supposed, you just, you play someone who's trying very hard to appear not drunk. Ah, uh, yeah, that's a good night. trick. That's what people who are drunk do. They don't, they're not screaming, running around like, ah, it's great to be drunk. <laughs> they're, they're usually, if they're talking to you, trying hard to be more normal. So if you just yeah. do that, you actually appear also heard it's good to spin a little, like, like when to like spin around so you get a little dizzy. Oh yeah, I had to. Well, what ended up happening is because I my line, my like one stupid line didn't make it. But the moment that they kept in was me falling, kind of. I'm like falling uh -huh. behind the bar, and that was fun because the director was just like, "Can you look like you hurt yourself more?" <laughs> <laughs> Well, just kind of falling behind the bar. And I mean, anyone who's falling looks strong. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Also, I was absolutely blacked out. Don't tell. Don't tell <laughs> <just> Hollywood. <laughs> I was on crystal meth. <laughs> you, you're a method. That's all. I'm They'll a understand. method. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, did, I didn't mean the pun, but I'll take it. <laughs> I, I regret it so much. This is like. So what are you looking to get into next? More of the same or? Would love an actual audible line of dialogue on a television show. I only did the first two seasons of Tuning Out the News, so I'm not on a show regularly right now, but I'm, you know, working more on the writing right now. And especially cool. since I've been doing less of the live performance just recently. Mm -hmm. um, and you had your really... one person show in 2018. I've done a couple. Okay. I I did that at the Dixon Theater and the mm -hmm. Pit and the Brooklyn Comedy Collective. But then I also had one, just a one-off in 2021. Okay. September 2021. Brutally. Uh, that was the night of those crazy floods that everyone in their basement apartments in Queens died and then there were rats strewn everywhere in the street. Yeah. So it's like a little tainted in my memory <laughs> i don't think of that night with too much fondness oh, wow. but that was about that was called inferno and that was i think virgil and i was guiding the audience through the narrowing layers yeah oh wow that was a rough night because my the neighbor who was in the basement at the time in my building it was rough. It was like... I'm so sorry. I feel partly responsible. I know that I'm not, but I had people come out into Manhattan late at night during that, and they, it was hard for a lot of them to get home. Uh, they died, well, and I knew, but... Whatever. Well, don't feel bad about it. You couldn't have known. They didn't know that was going to happen. <laughs> you, you, you couldn't no. have known. Thank you. You're welcome. So you're wanting to write more and you're going to pitch your, your pitching yeah. thing? Yeah. 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 And, you know, it's like, like I said, for every job you see here for someone, there's a hundred thousand jobs that you can get. So I mean, this yeah. is a really period of knocking jobs, but I'm auditioning, you know. Yeah. That is so much of the work is putting yourself out there and just hoping somebody goes with you. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and you're putting yourself out there a lot, you know, like if, if you're. <laughs> 
because you you mentioned voiceover. I mean, that's it's just you're on like voices.com. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like there's all yeah. of those, and then there's what your agent sends you, and then there's the on camera stuff that you're putting yourself out there for. Mm-hmm. Now you're pitching and you're putting yourself out there that way, and you're writing the you know any any byline stuff that you're writing you're putting that out there and hoping it gets mm-hmm. picked up but that is a lot and there's got to be a way to feel confident about that right like just to say that's a i haven't found it <laughs> but <laughs> that is like creating a lot of work that's being very creative and doing a lot and while it may not pan out the way one would hope it's still good to keep at it yeah, well, you, the corny, like, advice to actors that is completely unrealistic that people say is you should treat auditioning as your job. And yeah. I don't think that's really so possible, but I do try to <laughs> yeah. that mindset. That's when it's good to, you know, like I said, have something else to go to. Like, mm-hmm. if auditioning feels like you're just sending your tapes out into a, a void that no one ever cares about or whatever that's when you write more or whatever. And then an event and they are watching it, even though it doesn't feel like it. And eventually yeah. someone will like it. That's a really good point. I too I'm with you. I don't want to look at auditioning as the job. Because mm-hmm. number one, you don't get paid for it. Mm-hmm. But also it's easy to get burnt out if you're looking at it as the job and then stuff isn't happening. I look at it as a part of the job because it has to be, but the job is being creative. And one great thing that I heard someone say, actually on this podcast, was that auditioning is an opportunity to be creative. And mm-hmm. I, I think that it's a very healthy way to look at it because otherwise you can't get bogged down with, oh, I really need this to work out or I need the money or am I doing it right? Or, you know, like be yourself, put yourself out there and you, you kind of have to let it go after you put it. Yeah, yeah. There. I mean, it, it, that's hopefully you're getting good auditions then at that point and you're not getting spokesperson for H&R Block, whatever, because <laughs> it's hard to be creative with this. But yes, yeah, the it is hard to be creative spirit of what you're saying is very true. And when I get an audition for something big and exciting that I will never in a million years book, it is you can be like, well, this is my one opportunity to play whatever. So yeah. And it's good practice, too, of getting out there. I mean, it's sort of like getting up and doing stand-up or getting up and doing improv because you're practicing a certain muscle, yes. especially if you're just trying to present yourself. Like, I know it's easy to think sometimes I did see a TikTok of an actor who was saying, I did a very straightforward. <laughs> I did see a TikTok. I know, right? But she was an actor who was saying, I went up for this commercial. Here's my read. It was, and it was a very straightforward read. And she goes, here's the commercial. It's either a clip of the commercial. And the woman in the commercial had a very quirky character choice that she made. Mm-hmm. And so the point the actor is making was like, go for it. <laughs> just just yeah. go for it. So yeah. like even when it is those H&R Block spokesperson, like just go for it. Because yeah, I'm, an H- I'm the H&R Block spokesperson with a rubber chicken and blood running <laughs> out of her eyes. Like, Absolutely. Sure. Because it at least shows the casting director like, oh, I get this person a little more now. And when, if something comes up that your vibe fits for, they, they'll think of you, you know? Hopefully. Well, right. They, they're, they, you have to be memorable, even if it's not right for the role to have it. Right. The, the only thing worse than having a bad tape, or maybe even arguably worse than having a bad tape is a completely unmemorable one. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You're going to be bad, be memorably bad. <laughs> well, more power to you. Good luck to you with everything. 
Thank you so much. Well, we've reached the end of the episode. It's time to create something together. And since you write satire bylines and, and people love the reductress ones, and I do too, and we have that reductress connection, can we maybe try to write one now? Sure. Or at least go through the process of it? So how yeah. does it, so you mentioned that it, it, a lot of times it comes from your life. I was, had a thought earlier. I have a hard time making sad things funny. Mm. So when it comes to anything about the black experience in America, yes. I will talk about it, but I won't, even if I'm tweeting about it from my at Jason Farr jokes account, it's not a joke. It's just like a point. But a lot of people do mind that stuff for comedy. And so I had this thought earlier that Vice did this piece on a homeschool program that started in 20, late 2021 that is a neo-Nazi school, essentially. Are you about to challenge me to make Nazis funny live on what, no, no, I, no, uh, no, let me, no, no, well, no, that's not, I'm going to, all right, brainstorm right now. I'll tell you what I tweeted. Did you find we'll, out, I'm, you saw that I'm Jewish when you looked me up. This is great. All right. My grandpa died in the hall. No, I'm not trying to say any of that. <laughs> I didn't want you to think that. But the thing that I talked about was like, okay, there are thousands of kids in this. That's horrifying. Yet you have all these people who are talking about CRT and how terrible right that's going to yeah. be, right? Right. And so I'm wondering, of, are any of the people complaining about CRT going to have anything to say about this homeschooling that's happening right now in America that mm -hmm. is very real while CRT is not being taught in any elementary school? So because of how angry and upset I am about the subject, I have a hard time finding an actual joke. Well, for that, what I would do is start breaking down the words that you would have to use there, like critical race theory. Like, um, you could say something like, I don't know this is going to be any good, but like, like Nazis, like, like if, like the Nazis would defend, like they would say that Nazism or neo-Nazism should not be a part of critical race theory because like not being a Nazi is not a race, like. It's like a way of life or like being a Nazi is like, that's not my race. That's my blank, whatever, you know, mm. something funny. There. That's that's it's not my race. Or you could even say something like you could start to point the contradiction of, in, in the direction of like the Nazis saying, like, why do you have a problem with me calling myself a Nazi? It's just how I identify, you know, like yeah, it's starting uh. to pull air, woke language out uh -huh. and pair it with. The absurdity of Nazis. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's sort of like, I believe it was a reductress. There has to be a reductress headline that I saw recently that was, they were saying something like, the LGBT are trying to groom children, says man who just asked seven-year-old if she has a boyfriend yet. Yes, 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 yes. Right? Like They have was... fun formatting. To, the way that they format a lot of their headlines lends itself a lot. Like, the headlines of reductress, it goes with the formula. Well, is what? You described about how, like, try to break down the words you have to use. Is that how you can get kind of out of the sadness of the piece? And yes. Find, yeah, because that's. Yeah, like, reductors would say something like, critical of race. Well, this guy's, this Nazi is white. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> you're you're criticizing someone for race, you know, and that's not what critical race theory is. Right. Criticizing <laughs> yeah, yeah. race. But if you start playing with words, criticizing race, well, this Nazi's white and proud, um, you know, right. whatever. Uh, <laughs> I get it. Yeah. 
Yeah, um, I don't know. That's stupid, but you know what I mean. I get what you mean. I think the thing that is that has always been elusive to me with satire is they'll talk about something that's sad, and they'll talk about the thing that we all realize that's ridiculous about what's happening. Mm-hmm. But somehow they they find a funny way to point it out, and and I'm always too mad. <laughs> the funny thing well, the, to point the out. piece I did like for Elle which is I don't remember exactly what it's called because they never get let you get to keep the titles that you come up with they always change the title but I think it's ended up being like like scared of climate change like here's how to oh, be oh yeah 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 it, um, it's, it, it was yearning to be a parent but scared of climate change try these baby alternatives Yes. Yeah, that, that that was not my headline, but that's what they came up but with. But you and wrote a whole piece. But I wrote that the was... piece. Yeah, the piece okay. is mine. And it's about the plants that can make you feel like a parent if you realize that having a child in late capitalism would be irresponsible because you're condemning the kid to die of climate apocalypse. So, like, get a fern. Um, <laughs> that came out of me being in my 20s and being like, don't I have a freaking kid? I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. And then and then seeing people around me being like, I'm a plant mama and doing that. <laughs> okay. I didn't know people were saying I'm a plant mom. Oh um, yeah. <laughs> I respect a plant daddy. I don't respect a plant mom. So. <laughs> well, there it is. Thanks so much for being on the podcast, Simone. Thank you so much for having me. It was a delight. What a delight it was having her on the podcast, and I hope you enjoyed that chat, and I hope you check out her work. You can at simonenorman.substack. You can also follow her on Twitter at YSimoneY and on Instagram at localhoney. That's H-U-N-N-Y. Love that handle. Also, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at There It Is Pod and subscribe to our YouTube channel at There It Is and follow me on Twitter at Jason Far Jokes and Instagram at Jason Far Picks. Also, subscribe to our Comedy Lifestyle newsletter and support us if you can. We have a Patreon and a PayPal. Go to thereitispod.com for newsletter and support info. Links in bio. Fun episode next week. It's a Pop Talk Super Bowl episode. Until next time, be good to each other. The music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr. (laughs) 